1: Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness and free will at templeton.org/podcast.
2: listener supported: WNYC Studios)
1: Okay, so here we are on the precipice of a new year, but before we jump into it...
3: We wanted to just look back on all the stories and updates Radio Lab has brought you this year.
1: Harry Pace.
2: Why, why don't we have like three movies about this dude?
1: Rep Myosin. They just wanted to thank him. For keeping their kids alive.
4: Placenta.
5: When you're pregnant, you grow an entirely new organ.
4: Breath. Red Herring, that conversation with Annie and Lulu about farts.
5: Are you
3: like anti so fart gross. or something? I, are you not?
4: One of my favorite moments in podcasting
1: of all time. So many greats. In a way, putting Red Herring next to breath, it's like breath comes out one way and <laughs> oh, Red come Herring come comes on. out the other way. You know what I mean? Yeah.
3: Uh. Anyway, so why are we looking back?
4: Well, it's that time of year, right? This is the moment when like, you take stock of things that you care about and you want to financially support, but we've got a new way for you to do that. It's called the lab.
3: And to be a part of the lab, there are three tiers you can choose from.
1: So depending on how generous you're feeling or or how much of a peak you want to get behind the scenes, you get. A lot of great stuff.
3: We got some magnets. We got some embroidered retro patches. We got tote bags. And instead of ads, you'll get bonus content and you'll get extra interviews or invitations to members only events.
1: You get a live stream following Jada (laughs) Boomrod 24 (laughs) hours a day, seven days a week. Can we just dwell for a
4: second on the no ads thing? I have to say this is like revolutionary. Mm. I just like I breathe in more deeply even just thinking about it. The story just goes.
3: So to take a look, see if you want to join, you just head on over to radiolab.org slash join. If you do end up supporting
1: us. We really appreciate it. So much. Yeah.
6: And have a happy new year. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right.
7: <clears throat> you're listening, listening to
8: Radiolab.
7: Lab. Radiolab. From WNYC. See?
1: I feel like I'm in an elevator or something. Na, I feel like na. I'm in a lobby. Hi,
3: this is Lulu. Na, na, hey, na, it's Latif. Na. And this is the last episode of Radio Lab for the year of 2021.
1: Um, and it's been a... Wow, it's been a year. Uh, like, do, Lulu, do you remember last year? At this time?
3: Yeah, there was so much burgeoning hope.
5: (laughs) Pfizer and BioNTech... ...has shown early promise.
1: Moderna announcing its vaccine. Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is being called a new weapon tonight. This time it's just one shot. Yeah, it was vaccine after vaccine after vaccine. It's
9: for the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Sputnik v vaccine.
1: Anything was
8: possible.
3: Sleeves were coming up, needles were going in.
9: Vaccinated people do not carry the virus,
10: don't get sick. There was this moment of excitement.
1: Yeah, like we can lick this thing.
10: Unless something very odd happens, I would say that it is pretty much over.
1: And then...
3: And then we did it.
1: And now it's all solved and everything's great. (laughs) It's all over. Terrific.
3: And we're not quite. I know. The pandemic just won't leave us.
1: Right. I mean, some of it was not our fault. I mean, some of it was our fault as a human species. Some of it was not our fault. But regardless, as we've been looking back on this year... The second one in a row that has felt uh, like it hurt. Like it started with so much promise and we're ending with a whimper. We realized that, you know, this year has been a flop. It's been a flop of a year.
11: Yeah.
3: So here at Radio Lab, as this crappy year comes to a close, we decided to pay homage to the flop itself. This very common and yet very seldom celebrated human experience of flopping.
1: So, without further ado, we bring you. Not just one, not just two, but. Six flops. Six flops. Flops that are in the ocean.
3: Flops that are on basketball courts. I'm
7: not sure you got hit in the face. That's a sell job right there.
1: Flops that are on stage in front of millions of people. Uh, flops in the White
6: House. Disgusting disappointment.
1: But
3: not in the way you think.
6: This is getting out of hand.
3: Six flops of various shapes, forms, and velocities. Hoping that as we flop our way to the end of the year, it might be nice to flop with others. And
1: it might give us a little insight into what's on the other side of a flop. Are you?
12: So who has our first flop? I have it. It's me.
1: <laughs> Hello. Who Hello. are you?
12: My name is Sindhu Nyanasambandam.
1: <laughs> Welcome. Thank
12: you. Yeah, <laughs> What you
3: got? Where are you taking us?
12: We are going back to the early 2000s uh, to the show American Idol. Of course. Which was one of my favorite shows growing up. Yeah. And, you know, you you probably know how it's set up. It's pretty simple. Contestants go in front of these three judges, sing a song. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're really not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the performance that I remember most from the show, it's actually one of these flop auditions. And that's the one I'm going to tell you about. Okay. So this flop happened in September of 2003. Hello.
11: Hi. How are you doing? David? Oh, great. Thank you. Great doing to see great? you doing great? Great to see you guys.
12: This skinny Chinese guy wearing black pants and this blue short-sleeved shirt walks on stage.
11: William, why are you here? Um, I'm here to um, to sing to America.
12: Answers a few questions from the judges.
11: What are you going to sing? I would like to sing Ricky Martin, She Banks. Fantastic. I hope you all enjoy it.
12: Okay.
7: All right, let's go. All right.
12: And starts singing.
11: Talk to me, tell me your name. You blow me off like it's all the same. You in fierce, and I'm taking away
12: like a bomb. Yeah, baby. He's bouncing around in this, like, kind of awkward way. You can tell he's trying to dance, but it's, it's not really working. She bangs, she bangs.
6: Oh, baby,
11: when she moves, she moves. I go crazy because she moves like a fly, but she stays like a bee.
12: And eventually, Thank you. the judges cut him off.
11: William, it's one of actually the worst auditions we've had this year. Um, I already gave my best, and there's, I have no regrets at all.
12: And for some reason, this flop by this guy, William Hung, more than any other flop in maybe the history of the whole show, mm-hmm. it went viral.
7: Let me just say I have no professional training
6: in music. Okay. Talk to me, tell me your name.
12: There's an SNL sketch about it.
6: She banned. She banned.
12: People made parodies. Tell me your name. Making fun of his voice. He's
13: not from China, he's from Singapore, because he sings
2: really poor.
12: His accent.
0: I'm ready to get my
2: best. Even his teeth. i and, and put it with the William Hong chopper.
3: What did you think
12: about all this when you saw it happening? I, don't, I mean, I was just a kid. I probably just laughed with everyone else. But... You know, watching it now, it really just makes me sad.
1: What is sad about it?
12: I mean, I I think why he was so laughed at was because he sort of fit this, like, nerdy Asian stereotype. Yeah. And, like, I grew up in this place that was filled with people who are Asian American and, you know, just like a very immigrant community. Yeah. And as an immigrant watching TV and, like, especially a show like American Idol— It's sort of this way to answer this question of like, how am I supposed to be here? Like, what is liked? You know, what's like, what's what's good? What's lovable? Yeah. And and American Idol is the Hmm. the cleanest version of that because you literally get someone just like going and being themselves, and then three people Hmm. being like, "That was good. I like this. I like what you're wearing. I like how you talk. I hate this." this. Yeah, exactly. That's
1: so funny because it's yeah. Like an American idol, it's like your American paragon of what it is to be an American. Right,
12: right. Um, And, you know, William Hung.
1: Didn't fit the part.
12: Right. He didn't fit. And, you know, I thought when this whole thing happened, you know, when America essentially told him, William Hung, you don't belong. I thought he'd just, like, disappear, but he sort of did the opposite of that.
8: Oh, William Hung's coming
14: hung oh, in the house? Just... Become an overnight cultural phenomenon,
12: Which was so strange to me. Like, he goes on all these big talk shows and performs, she bangs, in malls, and concerts, and sports games. He does a halftime show at a Golden State Warriors game, a concert at the Rose Bowl with, like, Janet Jackson and Maroon 5. Oh, my God. It's like he's reliving the nightmare of that American Idol audition over and over and over again. Yeah. And I just, like, I never would have done that. You know, I I was the kind of kid who, if I got one answer wrong in class, I wouldn't want to go back the next day. And this guy was, like, going back to school, jumping on the desk, and just, like, shouting the wrong answer again and again and again. (laughs) It's like he's immune to being humiliated. Yeah. And I've always wondered, like, how? How did he manage to respond this way? So, William, how's it going? Good. I called him up.
11: Just a moment. Let me me fix my background.
12: Yeah, sure. He's 39 years old now, lives in Jacksonville, Florida with a friend. Okay. After the whole American Idol thing, he tried to become a high school teacher, but that didn't quite work out. And now he's a professional poker player. Did you just make your bed? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I asked him how he ended up auditioning for American Idol. And he said it's not like he grew up wanting to be a performer. He moved to the U.S. from Hong Kong when he was 10 and had a really hard time fitting in.
11: You could say that I'm more of a loner. My best friends were my teachers.
12: He got bullied in middle school.
11: Probably just because I'm Chinese or Asian. Because I was the only Asian in my class.
12: And college wasn't much easier. I
11: didn't know how to make friends so- socially.
12: But then, one day, he's walking into his dorm, and this poster catches his eye.
11: A picture of a guy with a microphone, hmm. the red curtains behind it.
12: Um, and it's his poster for this talent show that his dorm's holding. And he decides on a whim to sign himself up. It's like
11: a new opportunity.
12: He used to love doing karaoke with his parents.
11: The way I saw it was I had nothing to lose.
12: He chooses Ricky Martin's she bangs.
11: I just try to mimic Ricky Martin's dance moves.
12: Practices. Uh, So, like, she bangs, she bangs. (laughs) And when he gets on stage.
11: I see people were dancing with me. They were so excited. And then at the end, people were giving me loud cheers and applause. Like,
12: yeah! Woo! And he ends up actually winning the whole show. Whoa. Wow. I, I was like, what?
11: Really? <laughs>
12: <laughs> yeah, he wins a DVD player.
11: <laughs> nice. So so that so it's one of those nights nice that you feel like you were on top of the world.
12: Later that week, he's he's watching Fox News, which he watches every night. And he sees an advertisement for auditions for American Idol.
11: I was like, wow, maybe there's an opportunity there.
12: And, you know, he's still, like, riding off the high of, like, winning this, this school talent right. show.
11: I could win. Big. Right? Nobody knows.
12: And he's like, you know what? This is the next step. I'm going to sign myself up.
1: Hell of a next step.
0: Yeah.
12: <laughs> and you both saw how this went. though.
11: It was so weird and funny. Like, Randy would hold his white sheet
12: of It's paper. interesting to hear William recount what happened.
11: And then Simon was, like, frowning like this. He was, like, crossing his arms. <laughs> he seems... No. Well, that's a surprise of the century.
12: Almost amused.
11: I know I didn't do well on the audition. You know, I was nervous. My movements were very jerky. If you use the standards saying good, it wasn't good, but I could live with it. It's okay.
12: <laughs> Tell me more about your emotions of that day. And we talked about all of it. You know the jokes people made about Did him. At any point feel humiliated? The big performances him? of She Bangs. Um, I was just excited. And when I asked him about people making fun of him,
11: I kind of just like one ear in, one ear out.
12: <laughs> but that doesn't hurt hurt you. That doesn't hurt your your feelings.
11: No, they want to laugh at me. That's fine, um, be- be- because uh, they they enjoy. Um, or wa- watching or listening to songs like my, to my, you know, to my style of she bangs, whatever. Hmm.
12: But I wonder if you could talk about even one specific moment that either was painful or humiliating or like angering to you.
11: I really don't have that, Sindhu, um, and that's, that's a good, and that's a good, pro- that's a good thing. Uh, um, there were some interesting experiences for sure, but it wasn't like angered. Um, How'd I say it? It's not so impactful that I had to think about it every day. Hmm.
12: Yeah. Yeah, it's just amazing because like humiliation is a really hard feeling for most people, and it definitely is for me. And I, you know, I fear it a lot. And you know, that is one of the reasons I want to talk to you, is because it seems like you're sort of impervious to it, or that you're able to perform some type of alchemy to turn it <laughs> into something. I was asking him in all these different ways. And I was really starting to feel like he was somehow immune. Until through all of this, did you did you ever cry? I asked him this. No. Not once.
11: No, nope. not, not for not for American Idol, no.
12: Hmm. What's something that has made you cry?
11: Ooh. <laughs> very, harsh. very hard, very hard. Uh, there there were a few moments that made me cry. Um, I remember um, w- w- uh, one day, I spent a lot of time uh, after teaching, preparing the le- next lesson.
12: This was after the idol stuff settled down. He was training to become a teacher.
11: The next day, I was like, okay, these things will go well. I was optimistic. But then, you know, like the kids just decided not to follow me. You know, they saw me more like a funny entertainer, uh, celebrity. They didn't see me as their teacher. And then my master teacher called me out uh, and 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 uh, step aside like I'm taking over da 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 right it wasn't a, it wasn't a good scene it was it was an embarrassing scene to me <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he told me he would fail me if I don't improve uh, I cried after I got home because that really hurts that's that's not that's not a fun thing to hear yeah it felt real you know that's like like yeah. uh, oh my gosh uh, I did all this, and you say this is not good enough. Okay. <laughs> I, f- I, f- I felt that was big, a bigger embarrassment compared to my American Idol flop.
12: Why did that feel like a bigger flop to you?
11: Um, because, because, I, I, um, because I worked so hard to get to where I was. Um, I was ready to uh, graduate. I, was, I seriously considered taking on a high school teaching position uh, after I was done. But after that experience, that changed my mind. It's like, okay, I don't want to go through this ever again. (laughs)
12: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I guess that makes sense that that feels more like a flop because I guess with a flop, you need to have a ton of expectation and hope and, you know, you have to care a lot. And then you have that crushed with like a huge disappointment, like a total failure. And I guess this experience you had as a teacher does fit that definition way better.
11: Yeah, I agree.
12: But the thing is, like, for me, there's, like, one more component to the definition, which is, like, the audience, like, the the, the group of people who who are watching you fail.
11: Yeah, yeah.
12: And to me, like, that's almost everything. Like, it would matter so much to me that American Idol was in front of millions of people Um. But you don't seem to weight that component very much. And I just like, wh- wh- why do you think that is?
11: Bec- well, like I mentioned, uh, for, Ma- for my American Idol audition, it, it, I, I just focus on having fun, enjoying the moment, and that's it.
12: Yeah. But, well, I guess another way to ask this, like, it, like so the story we're making right now together it's actually like the first ever story where my voice will be like a big part of it. Um, Oh. You know, millions of people will be listening to this and that's really scary to me. Like I, you know, I I guess (laughs) I'm, I'm asking you all this from a place kind of, of wanting to learn from you. How do you not let the fear of judgment from all those people... And really, for you, not, I mean, not just the fear of it, but like the actual judgment, how do you not let that totally crush you?
11: Oh, I, li- I like this one. Um, so, so I would say uh, I choose to embrace my identity. I choose to embrace uh, my past, my present, my future. Uh, it's a choice. Um, I, like I, don't, I feel like I'm not the norm. Of uh, uh, whatever, whatever that means. Like back then, I was not the norm. Now I'm still not the norm. Uh, so, and that's okay.
8: Did
1: you find that helpful?
12: I mean, kind of. I don't know. I mean, I I think what I realized is that what he did to this question and kind of all of my questions. Yeah. Is he sort of just rejects them? Yeah. And I think it's because these questions kind of assume that what the judges or the audience, like the people out there, you know, America, they assume that what America thinks matters. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know. I just don't think that that's how he operates.
11: I pay my dues time after time. I've done my sentence.
12: And I I feel like every time I listen to one of his tracks, he's actually made some albums, which I've kind of been listening to a lot. It sort of reminds me that William Hung is a way to be in this world.
3: Producer, Sindhu Nganasambandam. When we come back, way more flops. Aquatic flops, Olympic flops, NBA flops, more flops. A lot more flops. We
11: are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers. Because we are the champions of the world.
1: Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank.
0: WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations and law firms in business disputes, government and internal investigations and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most, online at zuckerman.com.
3: Radio Lab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guaranteed details at TurboTax.com/guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.
1: RadioLab is supported by Dana Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division, so does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
3: Next flap. Comes to us from editors Soren Wheeler and Alex Neeson.
4: All right,
14: Neeson, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Did you have like a hot start that you had in your head, or should I just kind of get us kicked?
9: I, I mean, I have some stuff that I want of uh, and Lulu to watch. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. that'll be. But you can go, but go. Let's go. Ready, ready, ready? Um,
14: okay, yeah, so. Uh... <laughs> so I guess I'd say that this one is about the flop as a lie told through the physical movement of bodies. <laughs> On the basketball court.
1: Okay.
9: Wait, wait, wait. Do you guys even know what a flop is in basketball? A flop?
14: No, I I don't. You want to school him, Alex?
9: Yeah. Let's just, like, show you what we're even talking about. So this is a clip of Marcus Smart, guard for the Boston Celtics. He comes to the basket for a rebound. And... Oh, 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 man. That was extreme. He seems to, like, bounce off the Atlanta player, <laughs> does this flailing pirouette out of bounds. Yeah.
1: It's like he's he decided to do high jump in the middle of a game or something.
9: Yeah. So that's a flop. It's when there wasn't a foul or sometimes any contact at all, but the player hmm. falls and flails dramatically to try and get the ref to think there was a foul. <gasps>
14: Yeah, it's like a putting on a show. Like,
2: oh, ow, he
14: got, you know, like, oh, my God, he pushed me
1: over. I feel like I know of this in soccer, but I didn't know that
14: it was a thing in basketball. No, it's a thing in basketball, too, for sure. It always has
9: been. Yeah, but right around 2012 or so...
7: Look at our national television big board.
9: It seemed to be sweeping the NBA like some kind of
7: plague.
13: Are you kidding me? We got flopping as a major issue and we're going to the big board?
9: At that time. Oh
13: my. This is theatrical right here. Watch this. Oh oh yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot. I got to
9: sell it. The flops were just getting like especially flagrant and people were tired of seeing them.
7: Flopping is not a plus in this game. In
9: part because it looks stupid. But also... It
7: just ruins the game.
9: Because people thought it was bad for the game. You know it's not, fair. it's not fair. That it's disgusting, cheating. You would punish, you would like to punish the floppers. And it needed to be stopped. I, I would like to
11: eliminate it from the game. Game, game.
14: But then, along came a guy named...
13: Are you serious? Are you really that clueless?
14: Mark Cuban.
9: What the hell is that?
13: You, you don't ever use facts, you don't ever use substance.
9: The guy from Shark Tank. And he's desperate to put an end to the madness.
14: And he also happens to be a billionaire and owns the Dallas Mavericks.
13: Yes, yeah, Well, um,
14: I have to say, in my head, I imagine like a limo rolling <laughs> up on your lab.
13: No, Mark you know. Cuban just emailed me. That's how it started.
14: So this yeah, is Peter know. Wayne. He's a biomechanics researcher at Southern Methodist University.
9: So you just opened your email one day and it was just like, Mark Cuban.
14: Yeah,
13: one, one evening, I was like, oh. And I showed it to my wife. I said, do you think this is really <laughs> <laughs> And She said, yeah, I think it is. You should probably answer that. That's funny.
14: And basically he says, look, this flopping stuff is getting out of control. He was concerned about the integrity of the game. You know, we got all these big, huge guys that are sort of falling over all the time and flailing. And so I'm going to throw you a bunch of money and you are going to prove scientifically that these guys are flopping.
10: <laughs> so, sadly, since I am a Shark Tank fan, I, I've never met uh, uh, Mark Cuban. Uh,
14: That's Ken Clark. He was, at the time, he was a graduate student in Peter's lab. And so he and Peter got together, thought about it, and they're like, "All right, this will be fun. We have the equipment,
13: we have the tools, so let's let's do it.
10: A- a- absolutely.
13: Alright, so, so what did you do? Uh, we crashed into each other over and over and over again.
10: <laughs> we played human billiards. Yeah, exactly.
14: The idea was if they could figure out what a normal, non-floppy collision looked like, well, then they could spot when something fishy was happening.
13: So, we set up big crash pads in the in the lab.
14: They bring people in, they put like the little sensor things on them. We
13: have a motion capture system.
14: They got the cameras and they just have people run into each other.
10: Well, to do that. um, Max,
14: Max, Max. Uh,
13: In a whole variety of
10: ways.
14: (laughs) Subjects of
10: different sizes.
14: A little guy runs into a big guy. With different incoming velocities. You try it really fast. Now you go really slow or you just push on
10: them. Well, what are you doing today? Oh, we're just putting on some, you know, video game suits and running into each (laughs) other the whole day. (laughs) Yeah.
9: They even built a metal and plastic person. They called it Gus.
13: Gus, was he was just a galvanized structure with a piece of plywood in the middle. To, like, knock him over. I wanted to put a San Antonio Spurs jersey on Gus. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the members of the crew said, no, that's pushing it too far.
14: <laughs> so they do all these tests, and here's what they come up with. Guys falling on their butts all the time, that's not actually a reliable sign of a flop at all. If a player has their feet planted
13: and their weight on their heels or whatever— It doesn't take much force to knock them over. Right. It's not much. It's not much at all. If they don't move their feet, bam, over they go.
10: Yeah, absolutely. Huh.
14: So that's going to actually happen a lot in the the natural course of a game. But the thing you need to watch, according to Peter and Ken, is the arms. All of the excessive upper body motion. Histrionics.
10: Yeah, Yeah, the histrionics, really. The natural
9: reaction when you're hit and falling backwards is for you to take your arms and reach backwards to brace for impact. And so if a player is flailing with their arms above their head all
13: crazy. Nine times out of ten. That's probably a flop. They're putting on a show
9: problem
14: is even that doesn't really help much because a guy could actually get fouled and sort of flail his arms just to like draw attention to it.
9: Right. So so they write this whole report up, they even made like a video and they give it back to Mark Cuban. <laughs> and this was not what Mark Cuban wanted to hear.
13: He was hoping for more something more concrete and actionable to sort of stamp out this this epidemic of faking. Um but I you know, we can't change the science.
3: <laughs> so the whole experiment was itself kind of a flop.
13: <laughs>
14: well, I I mean, yeah, maybe a little bit. But the the interesting thing was that Peter and Ken told us that a scientific hard science spot the flop kind of thing actually might be possible in the not-too-distant future.
10: It's not far-fetched to think that we could have instantaneous velocity on all 10 players on a basketball court at any given time.
14: And all you would need is just like a tiny little bit of of math.
10: You know their mass. You know mass and velocity. You know instantaneous momentum. You go off some basic assumptions that momentum in a collision is going to be Um, conserved.
14: Then you just have computers that are sort of tracking and crunching all those numbers. Based on the sizes
13: and the velocities incoming and outgoing.
10: And if there's more momentum coming out of that than going in.
14: You just send a little signal down to the ref right there on the court.
10: Beep, beep, you know, bell goes off in the ref's earpiece and says, Hey, that, that was a flop. Just like, eh, a big old X. Loop. Like, that was fake. Like. Like, yeah, they, then they just put it on the big screen right yeah. over there.
14: It's like it's a the family stadium. feud when you get it wrong. Right, yeah, yeah. Right.
2: <laughs> to think that someone like Mark Cuban would spend his infinite amount of dollars to find out the core cause of flopping instead of why his team can't win a championship again seems to be a bit of a waste of money, don't you think?
9: Okay, so after talking to Peter and Ken about what they did, we were kind of letting ourselves imagine, at so least in theory, a the game without
2: players. flops. Or does Mark Cuban just have So
9: we decided to put this idea in front of my friend Tyler Tynes. He's a sports writer at GQ, and I was like, Tyler, like, what do you think?
2: I don't think anyone in this country, if they have any sense about themselves, would look at you in your face, sit down, and tell you they enjoy flopping. But flopping is part of the game. It has always been part of the game. And he was kind of squishy on this. Well, I think the thing in where I come from is that flopping by nature is sucker shit. It is naturally detestable.
9: So he hates flops. But at the same time, part of the beauty of the game for him is just letting players play it however they're going to play it.
2: And so the issue actually isn't with the players. The issue is with the league that incentivizes this type of entertainment. So if Trey Young or Draymond Green or Marcus Smart flails a bit differently than maybe some of our heroes of old, the reality here is that it makes money when you flop. The teams are better if you flop and you can get a three-point shot.
9: We have incentivized sports in America to be like, win, 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 by any means necessary. But flopping is by any means necessary.
2: And so... Is the core of this actually the players? Well, but if, if you could decide
14: whether the system is going to incentivize a flop or not. For sure. right? You could You could change the system so it doesn't incentivize it. Am I, am I, I'm just kind of curious, like, wh- would you rather see
13: a game with no flopping? No. And actually, we heard the same thing. No. Uh, it, it just doesn't, doesn't feel right to me, you know, having grown up mm. playing basketball. From both you know, Peter Way and, and Ken work. Clark.
2: No. I don't think so. Not, not in my mind. I don't, I, don't, I don't like adding police officers to the sports that I watch. You know what I mean? Like, we have changed how we talk about basketball. And flopping in the policing of flopping is a part of that. Where the way, like, how you identify who a basketball fan is now has changed. Who enjoys basketball? Who runs these teams? Who now are the presidents of these front offices? These are white kids who wanted to be Michael Jordan and Allen Iverson and never could. And now they have the cultural cachet and the power to say what is important within our athletics. And it is how we get to something as serious and non-serious as flopping, where it should be just a part of the art form. It should just be fun. But instead, it's become policed. Now you're a bad player if you flop. Now you don't care about the art of basketball if you flop. <laughs> now, even for someone like me, I'm calling these people out their name because they flop, right? It, it's it's not the trueness of how we believe basketball is supposed to be played. And so, to me at least, the issue is that, why well, I don't just care if these boys are playing basketball or not.
9: I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting because when I came into when we started when we started working on this story my feeling about flopping was pretty much centered around James Harden. Notorious flopper. And he would look so smug about it and it would just grind my gears and I I would just be so incensed by it. So when we started working on this, it was really a moment for me to sit and think about like what kind of basketball game I actually want. And so I arrive at this place where I'm like, Flopping just feels like it's just part of the theater and the drama of, like, what makes watching a game so exhilarating.
2: Watching James Harden oh my figure God. out how to be an insurance salesman with these flops, <laughs> it was kind of magical because you knew he was going into the game and had no care about the rules of the game. And that level of anarchy, that level of just self-assuredness and that you were going to break the game in some respects that was cool and so my thing is that i don't care if you flop is a part of how you are going to get over in this game i ain't gonna say i respect the thing though no 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 no, he's grabbing
14: his head that's a flop dude he hit his head come, come on. on he
1: just knows how to this game yeah. he didn't throw it Kicks his feet his legs forward and loses his balance that was a flagrant flop. Oh, you got to follow. You kidding me? From yeah. evening he went over and in the decision
4: Hello. Hello, lo. lo, 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 lo Hi. Lo, lo. Hey, everybody's here.
1: Next, producer Matt Kilty and contributing editor Heather Radke.
5: Yeah, so what do, what do you guys have? I actually feel like this is gonna be close to Lulu's heart. I've been thinking about Lulu hmm. the whole time. Really? Uh, Ooh, it's okay. about a ragtag group of women. Making their way in the world today, I already <laughs> hate it. I don't know. I already hate it. Watch i All right, uh,
15: so so we're gonna take you back to 2001
4: to a group of ragtag young women.
8: Total ragtag. One of them uh, was Kate. Kate Darmody Burke. So how do you want me to? However <laughs> <do> you want, <laughs> Ashley. I'll go. Ashley Gersick Murphy. I'm Shelby Klopak.
4: And
16: Shelby. Oh
8: gosh, I screwed that up. Um. <laughs>
4: so Kate, Ashley, Shelby,
5: and all three of them were lacrosse players.
16: Okay, so lacrosse.
5: Uh. Like sticks with little nets you throw a ball around.
8: Uh-huh.
5: <laughs> okay. So all of them had finished high school and they all wanted to play lacrosse in college, but you know, they weren't gonna play at like lacrosse
15: nation, University of Virginia, or on
10: top of the mountain once again, Maryland.
4: University of Maryland. Is your champion.
15: These very storied programs. They weren't getting recruited by these top schools. And they they kind of figured they would just like play at some small
4: school. Stay somewhere near home.
8: Yep. Well, so insert Kelly Amonte Hiller. You could call the Mia Hamm of women's lacrosse.
4: Two-time player of the year.
8: National champion at Maryland. She came to one of my soccer games.
4: She was going around the East Coast trying to recruit women to come play for her at Northwestern University.
8: But the problem
5: was Northwestern didn't even actually have a team.
4: Yeah, because Northwestern, it's in the heart of the Midwest, just outside of Chicago. And back then... Lacrosse was not a Midwest sport. It was an East Coast, like, mid-Atlantic thing.
5: But Northwestern had hired this, like, first-time head coach to basically build a program from scratch.
16: She
8: was, like, 26. Oh, you're, like, a little kid.
4: But when she went recruiting, she would ask these girls point blank.
8: Do you want to be a national champion? And we're sort of like, I mean...
4: What?
16: I remember giggling and laughing, but there was no smile on her face.
15: I thought, this lady is crazy, slash, I love her.
4: So... She managed to get a team
8: together.
15: Just picture a lot of really intense, short East Coast ladies (laughs) making their way to the Midwest. She was pulling
4: people from everywhere. She got these twins who she found on the street just jogging.
8: Asked them if they wanted to play lacrosse. They thought lacrosse was a town in Wisconsin. They don't even have a practice field. They
4: practice on the flag football field. But
8: early on, she sat them down and she said to them, we will be national champions and we need everybody to buy in. You know, I say jump, you say how high. She had a spot and doing yoga and meditating. They did these things called affirmation circles. We would go around and tell
16: each other positive things about us, you know. Oh, you're so fast,
15: Jenny. Your shot is so strong, Ashley. And Kate told us. We drank the Kool-Aid. She told us we could do anything and we really just believed her.
4: And so that year, this group of mostly freshmen hit the field and they lost a lot of games. <laughs> they go five and ten. Five and ten. Five wins, ten losses. Five wins, ten yeah. losses. Uh, mm. It's pretty bad. Their second year, they go eight and eight. No? Okay. Third year, they go fifteen and three. Ooh. Which means they made it to the playoffs, um, but they ultimately lost in the quarters to UVA. I
3: went to UVA, so I could be go who? <laughs> <laughs>
4: but then their senior year, they go undefeated. Ooh. And they actually make it to the national championship game where they have to play UVA again.
3: Are you building up a Mighty Ducks here? But then they get to the oh, finals quack, and quack, blow it?
4: Quack. Like, is that the No, 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 no. They win.
1: Northwestern University Wildcats.
4: We should. They win. They win the championship. <laughs> the bench clears.
1: What? First time in a championship game. And national title winner.
4: They're like hugging, crying, jumping, laughing.
8: I mean, it was the most incredible. You know, I now have two children, and that's pretty incredible, but <laughs> truthfully, the most incre- <laughs> incredible experience of my life.
15: We went nuts. And then I will never forget being in the locker room and Kelly talking about just how proud she was. And then we get to go to the White House,
4: which is where this story sort of flips. It's
5: July 2005. They go to D.C., they get all dressed up, and they go to the White House.
8: It smelled and felt distinguished, you know? It's the it's the White House.
4: They get to see Lincoln's bedroom. They walk around the Rose Garden. And then they get ushered into this room where in the corner...
8: There's almost stadium seating
16: kind of bleachers.
4: So the whole team goes over, takes their place, and then in walks... George W. Bush.
16: He's got on a suit and tie.
4: He comes over, congratulates the team. They give him a couple of lacrosse sticks. And
16: then some photographer says... Okay, everyone, look up here.
4: Three, two, one... Snap. A few days later, Shelby gets a call on her cell phone.
16: But I didn't recognize the phone number. And I picked it up. And it happened to be some reporter. I don't really recall from where. And then she was asking me, you know, just different questions about winning a championship and going to the White House. And then all of a sudden, it took a turn because she said something of, did anyone say anything about your foot attire, I said, excuse me?
4: And the reporter went on to say, well, in the White House photo, you were clearly wearing flip-flops.
16: And that could be considered disrespectful or inappropriate. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry. I have to go. She
4: hangs up and she's like, oh, God. Because she wasn't the only one who was wearing flip-flops that day. No. Kate was one of them.
15: My cell phone starts ringing at five in the morning. It
4: was a reporter asking her about her flip-flops. She says a day later. The
15: story broke.
4: First it was in the Chicago Tribune. Then USA Today. White House flip-flops flap. NBC. White House footwear fans flip-flop kerfuffle. ESPN. NPR.
5: CBS.
10: Ladies, good morning to all of you.
5: Kate and Shelby were on the Today Show. You
10: don't wear
14: flip-flops to meet the president of the United States. And
5: their mothers are the on mother's the mothers on the show, the God. coach, and
15: then a shoe expert.
16: You know, I would have chosen something that was a closed toe.
15: Saying that we should have been wearing a full-heeled, closed-toe shoe. Do's and don'ts for flip-flops. You would put White
16: House
7: on the don't list. I would put it on the don't list.
15: All because of this photo
4: where a few young women are wearing flip-flops. Wait, actually, can you show me the picture? Yeah, hang on. Or maybe just maybe Google. Yeah, or, yeah hold on. Okay, I'm, just hang on, I'm searching up the La photos. White House Are you searching? Okay, you'll see the picture. Okay, I see
1: the picture. It's a totally innocuous, such an innocuous picture. It's like such a generic photo op photo of the president holding two lacrosse sticks, and then all of these women. But look at their feet, Latif. <laughs> but it's just so. It's just so nothing. Oh, yeah. is it Latif? Is it really nothing? <laughs> yeah, it seems
5: Have so you nothing. Considered- Wait, do you
3: guys as humans? Matt and Heather, do you actually think it matters?
5: Really? What do you mean? Matters in what sense? Uh well, with
3: with just being like, oh, who cares? Like I don't
5: I don't think it matters. like I don't think they should have been shamed for wearing flip flops at the White House. But I think I think mm -hmm. it very much matters that these things happen. That they because it tells us something
4: about us. Yeah. And so to that point we ended up calling up Oh, Alexis is back. I'm back. Oh, Alexis is back. Hi. Hi. This presidential historian, Alexis Co. Because
5: as we kept reporting on the story and trying to answer Latif's question, why does this matter? We kept coming back to the scene of the crime, the White
4: House. If we just go back, let's go back to like the early, like the formation of the White House.
15: When Washington first took office, the White House was an idea that they would get to.
4: So at first, when Washington was president, he lived in New York. And then in Philadelphia. But he knew that there needed to be a permanent residence for the president. Presidential house, as they would call it. And his big thing was, whatever they end up building.
12: There can be no
15: markings of monarchical rule.
4: Like no gilded doors and a big arched gateway. He was like... I'm Mr. President. Right. It's not a presidential palace. Because the idea is that the the, the government, the democracy is supposed to be of the people, by the people, for the people.
15: But Washington was in a tricky situation because he liked the finer things in life. He liked sumptuous fabrics, plush suits, purple carriages.
5: The Um, example Alexis gave us that's like excellent for this very thing is for his inauguration. He
15: orders a simple homespun brown suit. But if you look down at his shoes... He's wearing
4: diamonds. What? <laughs> Shoes with diamonds
5: no. on them. What? She's
12: wearing diamond buckles.
8: Wow, <laughs> GW.
4: And so under Washington, what we ultimately end up with for a president's home is definitely not a palace, but it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a mansion. Uh, when it was built, it was the biggest house in all of D.C. <laughs>
9: it's
5: like a conflicted, confused space. <laughs> all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, the White House is built by enslaved people. The, the first handful of presidents besides Adams are all slave owners. They're like fancy Southerners who are trying to like figure out how to also be democratic, which is like, these are like the primordial problems of American democracy. Like who's inv- who gets to be inside of it and who's not inside of it. It's like all the stuff that's kind of like baked into the, formation of the country is also baked into the
4: formation of the White House. And so this is where it gets kind of fascinating. Because for example, both the House and the Senate have rules for dress code. Like they have dress codes, they have rules for decorum. Like the White House doesn't have anything that's codified. Interesting. Uh, And so what the White House becomes is this space where in each administration they can sort of dictate what the White House ought to be and kind of like demonstrate what they think our country should be.
5: You know, it's played out in the Christmas, like what Christmas trees the first lady chooses. And, you know, I was immediately thinking about that. Melania's Yeah. And and there's like, you know, George Bush banned blue jeans in the White House, but Obama would let staff workers work without their suit jackets on. Yeah. Like all these questions of formality and taste are really questions about like what is the White House and in some sense like who is America Hmm. and the lacrosse players when they flopped onto the floor of the White House they were kind of unwittingly walking right into the middle of this question
15: you know there wasn't a set of rules where it felt like we were doing something wrong. That's Kate again. I had no idea until my brother was the one that yelled at me. (laughs) I mean, they thought they were wearing nice shoes.
16: Yeah, you know, the more I reflect on it... Shelby again. I wonder if anyone would have even thought twice about what a men's team wore on their feet.
5: And I think one of my favorite things about this whole thing is that when these women went on the Today Show... When they were basically asked to appear on national television to apologize for having worn flip-flops to the White House, this ragtag group of women who had won this national championship against all odds, they walked up onto the stage at NBC's Studio 1A in New York City wearing matching flip-flops.
7: At any point when you got to the White
14: House, did you look around and say, ooh, maybe this is a little
6: inappropriate? Not at
5: all. No? No? (laughs) And that was, you did that on purpose. That was sort of
15: like... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
16: They asked me, now what makes a champion? (laughs) Let me tell you. uh we stood tall, put up a fight. No fear, that's what champions look like. So all my girls, make them look twice. That's right, that's what champions look
1: like. All right, okay. Uh, so next up, we are going to a place where flip-flops are not only allowed, they are uh, celebrated.
9: Okay. The pool.
1: Fun. Fun is not exactly the word I use to describe this story. Um, It's a, it's kind of the story of an ethical conundrum. Uh, That's how I would put it. And uh, it involves an Olympian, uh, a global pandemic, and because I roped him into it, uh, our colleague David Gable.
7: Oh, and a flop, too. All right. Lachif calls me and he said, have you ever heard of Greg Luganus? And I said, I'm a. Gay man who's 64, of course I've heard of him. Okay, um, <laughs> okay so
1: we're talking about the 1988 Olympics in Seoul.
17: Hey, welcome to day four of our coverage from Seoul, Korea.
1: Greg Louganis is both a platform and springboard diver. And at the prior Olympics, he gold medaled in both.
17: No diver has ever won back-to-back goals. Greg Louganis is expected to do that here in Seoul.
6: Going into the 1988 Olympic Games, I was the favorite. That's Greg. And then um, in the prelims, fortunately it was prelims. um, Something Greg never expected to happen, uh, happened. Yeah.
17: We're at the diving venue, Chomshell Indoor Swimming Pool, the preliminaries of the men's three-meter springboard.
7: Greg
1: has done eight dives.
7: He steps up to
1: the board for his ninth dive. Wait,
3: I feel like I need a visual. What does he look like
7: then? Oh, my gosh. He's like Hollywood handsome, (laughs) wavy, dark hair, Fit body like the Calvin Klein ads in Times Square. And you can see his concentration. Like, the whole world falls away, but the
6: whole world is actually watching him. And then... I got set. Takes three steps. Jumped up off the board. About
1: six feet up in the air. Swings his legs over his head. Starts a backflip.
6: Goes around once. Twice. And then I heard this big hollow thud and I go crashing into the water.
17: Oh, God.
7: You see people sitting in the stands and their hands are over their mouths in shock.
6: I was thinking, what the hell is that? And then I realized that was my head.
17: Now we'll go back and look at it in slow motion. What happened?
6: Greg did not get his weight far enough over the end of the board. Watch his hips in relation to his heels right there. His weight is too far back.
1: Kind of amazingly, uh, he just pops up out of the water.
7: Yeah, and he swims to the edge of the pool. I made my way over to my
6: coach, Ron O'Brien.
7: And the coach is pushing the blood up into his dark hair so that the blood running down his neck isn't showing.
6: Turns out he split
1: open his scalp. Uh, at the back of his head. So he walks away from the pool, gets
6: brought back into a training room, a, a
17: strong medical staff was there.
6: And they stitch him up. Four
17: temporary stitches.
6: The first emotion that I felt was I was embarrassed. You know, and of course the world's watching.
1: But there's one thing the world didn't see, and and that's actually what drew me to this story because inside this very public moment, this very public flop was a secret that Greg wouldn't actually reveal until years later.
17: You hit your head Mm -hmm. and there may have been blood in the water. Mm -hmm. Why were you terrified?
6: Because Ron O'Brien and myself were one of the few people in the stands that that knew that I was HIV positive.
7: The man considered to be the greatest diver in Olympic history has announced today that he has AIDS. So when Greg finally reveals his status to the world in 1995, it was huge.
9: Please welcome Greg Louganis.
7: He was on all the shows. He was on Oprah.
17: Greg has come forward.
7: Sally Jesse Raphael. He
17: is publicizing a
14: past.
1: And in these interviews, the same questions or kinds of questions keep coming up.
14: How would a smart guy like you practice unsafe sex?
6: On Larry King. I, I'm i not following How'd you get AIDS?
1: And then, once you knew you had it and you were going to the Olympics, Barbara Walters asked, uh, why didn't you tell anybody?
6: I didn't anticipate hitting my head on the board. I didn't anticipate, you know, blood. Um, that's something that you don't, I didn't think about at the time.
17: But you didn't tell the Olympic Committee, you no. didn't tell anyone.
6: I was encouraged not
1: to. Greg told Barbara that he had told his coach, but almost nobody else. Because, like, if he was if he was HIV positive, he he wasn't allowed at the country. That would have been a uh, he probably would have been barred from the Olympics. He probably would wait, have been, wait, wait.
3: Like he was in Seoul, but he w- if he had disclosed his status. He wouldn't have been allowed.
7: Yep. Wow. There was a list of countries that had it announced: you may not enter the country if you test HIV positive. Right. And if he had announced it while he's there, he would have been sent home immediately.
1: But Barbara Walters just
6: kept asking him.
17: When you hit your head and there was blood perhaps in that water, what did you think?
6: That's where I became paralyzed with fear.
7: Because I watched that going, stop beating this guy up for 10 minutes of his life.
1: Yeah. I mean it it, it it is hard to watch. And 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 I think even then, like people mostly knew that HIV couldn't even be transmitted that way. Like the, mm-hmm. the pool was so big, the water was chlorinated, you know, so so it does there's part of it that does feel like it's just like everyone ganging up on the gay guy. Mm-hmm. Um but but there is I don't know, there is one part of it that feels like a fair question to me, and that's like when I think about the doctor, right? The guy who was stitching up Greg's head, he wasn't wearing latex gloves. And so he was stitching them up. Like if he had pricked his finger with that needle, he he could have contracted HIV. Hmm. To to me, that moment that that is very morally complicated.
6: Yeah. One of my fears was, you know, well, what is my responsibility knowing that I'm HIV positive? Yeah. Um, you know, Was that like a
1: like was that like a like a like a no like it a, just is
6: it's like what what do i do what's th- what's the next right step did you
1: know the doctor wasn't wearing gloves
6: i i i didn't see it i had my face down and i didn't have eyes on the top of my head and and that's just it you don't know what you don't know you're dealing with the situation in that moment
1: what is your like just just walk me through your your internal monologue.
6: Well, you know, the, the thing is, I mean, one thing that I learned just through practice, through my years and years and years of performing is always asking myself, what do I have control of? Usually not much. Okay, there were no latex gloves. Okay, that's not in my control. And so it's, it's basically letting it go.
1: After we talked to Greg, I, I just, I, like, I kept thinking, like, he's he's right. There's nothing he could have done about the accident, nothing he could have done about the doctor not wearing gloves. Mm. But I did keep thinking, like, he did have control over whether or not he told
7: the guy. Yeah, but you're making it sound so simple. Um, Put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his Speedo. And <laughs> think about... What just happened? All that's at stake. Right. You know, when he came out as HIV positive and gay, I'm relieved and feeling like I'm not the only one who's thinking about this kind of thing. I think me and HIV positive people around the world, uh, because I tested positive in 87, a little earlier than he did, and I got this job to sing at Tokyo Disneyland, and I needed this job really badly. And I was very familiar with that list of countries that you're forbidden to enter. And Japan is on there, too. I'm coming into Narita Airport outside Tokyo in this very formal, very polite English but Japanese thought kind of sign. It says, hello, if you are HIV positive, please step over here and register. And I remember walking Mm. under that going, you have got to be kidding me. I am Mm. not saying a word. So, when when I'm hearing lots of go back about what were you thinking at the moment, well, you kind of think about that moment every day of I'm in the kitchen and I'm having dinner with friends and I cut myself and what do I do? I'm not going to announce to everyone I'm HIV positive, but I'm going to make sure I clean it up, run it underwater, get it bandaged up, Mm -hmm. and have my heart stop pounding. So, to zoom in on did you make the right choice in that moment when you're getting stitched up is an understandable question, but, I mean, think about all the secrets you gotta keep because you have to keep them.
1: The part of that that I, like... Yeah, that I, like, really hadn't considered was this feeling that it's, like, this one moment, however, you know, uh, highly public it was, it was just, like, one moment in a string of so many moments like this. Yeah. So I guess to end uh, the story of this moment, um, what happened next?
7: They checked him over. Okay. So Greg finishes getting stitched up, and he goes to talk to his coach.
6: He said, you know, you can pack up. You don't have to get back on the board. We could just go home. But I was in fifth place. I turned to my coach and, um, you know, said that we've worked too long and hard. He said, okay.
7: They're not going to go home. They're going to keep going. He
17: will continue in the competition.
7: So he gets
6: back on the board. He has two
7: dives remaining. I
6: heard an audible gasp from the audience. I
7: remember watching it, and I just held my breath for you to take that next dive.
6: Yeah, yeah because you didn't know what was going to happen, right? Oh. I didn't know what was going to happen either. But it's the Olympic Games. First dive, nails it. It was the highest scoring dive of the Olympic Games. Does the next dive. And he's going to
7: the finals. In the finals. Right. Next night in the finals, yeah! he wins gold in the springboard, and then the final dive of his competition. He's up for gold on the platform. His last chance.
6: A dive takes less than three seconds.
14: Murghaņis wins his second gold medal of these Olympics. You did it becoming the first man to win both the platform and the springboard competition in two Olympic Games.
1: Coming up, two more flops, one into the water, and one out
0: of it.
1: Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org podcast. Lulu, Radiolab.
3: That was me flopping. It's a flop show. Flop show. All right.
18: Our next flop comes to us from? Flippity floppy. Okay. Flippity flop. Yeah. Producer Rachel Cusick. All right. I'm going to start by telling you about a time when I didn't flop, but I wished I had. Oh, the flop that got away. Exactly. All right, Rach, please explain. Okay, so last summer, I was in Utah with a friend, and it was just brutally hot.
3: It was so hot that we were in a parking lot, and the temperature read 114
18: degrees. That is my friend who I was with. Her name is Tamar. And Tamara, being Tamar, she went onto Google and found a public pool for us to go to. So we drove a few towns over, put on our bathing suits, and walked out on the deck. And it's clearly, like, the place to be on a day like today pool noodles slapping the water and like all this laughter and the centerpiece of it all was the diving board now Tamar is like immediately giddy these are my people the people at the diving board she leaves me behind and gets in line with a range of 6 year olds to 12 year olds she got onto the highest diving board and jumped and she just looked so happy like so perfectly carefree But that's not how I felt at all. Why? Growing up, I just was the one in my family who was the heaviest and in my friends who was the heaviest. And so as I grew up, the pool was where I was at my most vulnerable. Like there wasn't any hiding from clothes. And so I kind of trained myself to be as small as I possibly could at the pool. So that day in Utah, I'm at a crowded pool of strangers. And I'm like, how can I get myself in that pool as as fast as possible, but also like as quietly as possible. I'm like looking at the pool, searching for the corner furthest away from the eyes of the diving board. Like the, the cool lifeguards, they were off to the left. I got to like stay away from them. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was 25 years old. I'm like a great person. (laughs) Like I should not be strategizing away from the the lifeguard in the bucket hat. But that's where we were that day. And then I see that there's like awkward kids in the corner. So I head their way. I look both ways to make sure no one's watching me. And then slowly, carefully, like I'm putting a potato into a pot of boiling water. I slink my body into the pool. So it's just disappeared. Totally.
3: You, this entire time, Reach, just so you know, were just kind of like bathing with all of your body submerged except for your shoulders and your head.
18: <laughs> it's like an
3: alligator. You looked kind of like just not
18: sad, but just let down. Mm-hmm. I feel like almost you shut down in a way. And she was right. Like I felt defeated, Aww, like a kid who got bullied by myself. <laughs>
4: that's yeah, it's like, not good. That's it wasn't good. good.
18: So, so that was what happened back in July. And then this flop show comes along and pretty much the minute we get this prompt I turned on YouTube and started binging videos of our
14: eighth annual pedestrian belly flop competition
18: of belly flops. And I was spending hours doing this.
14: That was
1: postcard belly flopping. I will show you how to do it from any height. I
18: watch people who are like giving tutorials.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Oslo, Norway. World championship of Duds. I learned
18: that the Norwegians have a national sport dedicated to the belly flop. I move became
17: starfish. Oh.
18: obsessed with the belly flop. And I didn't even know why. Like, I'm staring at these videos of belly flops, the way that you stare at your fridge when you're really hungry and you don't even know what you need to eat. But then... I watched this one video. It's a, these manta rays that jump out of the water. And then they, like, kind of sail. And then they plop down like a pancake.
9: The higher they leap, the bigger the bang.
18: These manneries and their belly flops, they are the opposite of me in that pool last summer. And watching them, I was like, I want someone to teach me to do that. All right after you folks. Okay. Here we go. And so... Right. Okay,
16: let's go change. We'll see you in a minute. Yep.
18: Annie McEwen and I... You
16: never know where life will take
18: you. ...drive up to Boston and belly flop with the ultimate belly flopper.
10: I'm, I'm Chris Miller, I'm, I'm Lulu Miller's father, <laughs> and I think that's why I'm here, <laughs> but it is true that I have been belly flopping for... <clears throat> About 70 years.
3: As I know, you guys were like, we need someone. And I was like, I've got a real B-lister. Like, he's got no plans. And it's one of his only
18: interests. <laughs> it smells like a Oh,
10: pool. it smells great. <laughs> I don't even need my own towel.
18: So the three of us meet up at a hotel pool. Here,
5: we test the water temperature oh, with our hands? Oh,
6: tomatoes? I'm sure it's going to be. Oh, it's a
18: bath. We're out on the deck. And even though it was November, the pool was empty. Like, no one was there. I still felt that feeling from the summer lurking. I'm afraid to, like, even try. But honestly, the minute that feeling bubbled up for me, Lulu, your dad was like... You want to have
10: a demonstration oh, first. Oh,
18: can, can you demonstrate to start?
10: All right. It's just a matter of starting to dive, but not arching.
18: And he just kind of oh, flings my God. Oh, my God. his body... <laughs> And it just is, it's dazzling. That kind of looked awful. <laughs> and then it was my turn. Um, oh God, am I gonna, oh, this feels like big leaves. So I kind of stand like a plank with my feet at the edge of the pool in the deep end. Now don't bend your knees. Chris is coaching me from inside the pool. You don't have to control anything on your body. You just do it. And then I kind of surrender to gravity and then just let my head Oh my God. Oh my God. get carried down. Oh no, oh no, oh no. yes, yes. yes. And the first thing I heard when I popped my head out of the water was, was Chris cheering me on. And so there was this weird tension between, like, pure pride and... That hurt my head a little bit. ...pain. You don't get, like, a smack in the head. You face. get a smack in the head. You know, there's always a price
10: for pleasure.
18: But soon the pleasure of the flop outweighed the pain of it. What? And so I just kept flopping.
12: Okay. Yeah.
18: All right. Uh-oh. Whoa,
5: whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh, my Go, 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 go. No, 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 no.
18: How many times did you belly flop? I would say at least, like... One, two, three. <laughs> 15 to 20. What is your body... My body feels like it's been smacked yep, by like, that, one giant pop. You know, and that means you're doing it right. Every time I would emerge, being like, that was the most painful thing that's ever happened. Hey, your chest is getting
17: a little red oh, there. Oh, yeah. Try it again.
18: Yes. Oh! Yes. 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 Oh! But we do it again. Ah! And again. Oh! And again.
10: But now you can do this with running
16: understand less
18: and less <laughs> Meanwhile, Annie's standing on the on the side being like I have no idea what's going on This
16: is the worst. Yeah, yeah. Ah, You guys are masochists.
18: But it didn't matter cuz it felt like I was making up for all the years I didn't get in the pool that way what do you think, girl? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I was feeling freer a hero. Eventually oh. I became one with the flop and Chris and I took on the pool just like the man race.
10: Should we do a double flop? Okay. One, two,
18: three. Good job! And when I emerged from that last flop, I felt, at least in that moment, triumph. But also the worst headache I've ever had in my life. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's got to be a PSA announcement at some point. (laughs) My entire front of my body is popped blood vessels. Like, my legs are still blue. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, like, called my doctor the other day, and I had to, like, have the most shameful intro on the phone to be like. So, I was, like, repeatedly belly flopping on Monday night. And I I just want to know, like, do you think I need to come in for a scan? But I think it's okay. She thinks it's fine. And I um, just need to take it easy the next few days. (laughs)
3: All right. Thank you, Rach. Thank you, Dad. I think. <laughs> and for our final flop, I'm going to flop us right on out of the water <laughs> on the land. Uh, it is time.
14: What does that mean? <laughs> it,
3: it is time to look at a fish flopping around awkwardly on land. A fish flop. Okay. Okay. All right. So, you know, this is I don't, kind of. I don't
1: think I've ever actually seen this before. Really? No, I don't think I've seen that.
3: Okay. Well, allow me to conjure it for you. <laughs> Picture a beautiful scaled creature lying on a dock, trying to move, heaving up and then flumping down. And then heaving up and flopping down. Getting nowhere, you know? It's like a
1: last gasp kind of thing.
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think since the first time I saw it, it's just been burned into my brain as the saddest, most pathetic movement in nature. However... A few weeks ago, rolling on up on the shed aquarium, I met someone who watches fish flopping almost every day and she completely reframed how
18: I see it. My name is Rachel Zack and I'm a senior aquarist on the special exhibits team at Chet Aquarium.
3: Oh hello turtle. Adorable turtle. So Rachel walked me around all these massive tanks of clownfish and sharks. And I'll show you the ribbon eels, sea dragons, and pufferfish. Like a grumpy frog. <laughs> And first of all, she explained that every species of fish has its own little distinctive flop. I had this question last night, like, would an eel flop or would it just like wriggle like a snake?
4: Oh no, they, they flop. And the
3: thing that really holds them all together is that none of them, none of these flops are what she would call pathetic. In fact, when she sees a fish flop, she thinks, That's an awesome behavior.
18: That's exactly what they're supposed to do. It's part of how they survive. Flopping is effective. Like, a fish that you drop on a pier flops enough to make its way to the end of the pier. I mean,
17: there's an achievement there. So there's a real, there's skill, there's technique, there's just a ton of power.
1: It's just flailing, right? Like, how much technique is there? (laughs)
3: Well, the voice you just heard is Alice Gibb, a biologist at Northern Arizona University, who for the last decade has been filming fish flopping on desks in her lab. So let me talk about flops. Yeah. She filmed all different kinds of species. And when she played the videos back in slow-mo and watched what's really going on inside that motion, she saw that the fish is doing something
17: That seems impossible. Have you ever watched somebody dribble a basketball and they start it flat on the ground and they tap it just gently? And if you tap it and tap it and tap it, you can start the ball bouncing up and down in bigger and bigger and bigger arcs. So the fish somehow... Bounces itself.
3: And at a certain point, they kind of jerk up onto their tail. It's almost perpendicular to the ground at this point. And then... They launch forward, often into the water.
1: Wow.
18: Fish didn't learn to flop because we dropped them on decks, right? Fish learned to flop for many different reasons.
3: Grunion, which is a kind of fish, actually flops out of the water for their baby's sake. So they'll like flop up onto the sand, lay eggs so underwater creatures can't get them, and then flop back down into the water. They're rock stars. Or there are are other fish. Killifish. That flop because they live in these tiny little pools, and sometimes there might only be one in a pool.
18: And the males, they need to find females to breed with.
3: They'll just kind of flop like 10 times the length of their body into another pool. Hmm.
18: In a human-centered world,
17: when people talk about, I flopped down on the couch or something, seems to imply maybe an uncoordinated movement that then is followed by no movement at all yeah. right like it sort of implies that you've hit a a dead end yeah. but that's not what's going on with the fish on land right because even the flops which i think are called flops because they appear uncoordinated they have the ability to maybe take something that could be a dead end and turn it into another chance
1: But like a like a fish flopping onto back into the water, like how often could that possibly work?
3: Okay, well, probably not that often. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, but not that much.
1: Yeah, but you know, the thing it makes me think of mm-hmm. is like when you think about us, like like we're we were ocean creatures at the beginning before we became land creatures, and and for us to have gotten to the land at all, ever. Like, that was probably the first way it happened. Like, we're only possible because of fish flops. That there was this, there was this moment, there was this pivotal fish flop without which we would not exist.
3: Boom. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. We don't need to say any more. Okay. All right. That'll do it.
1: This episode was reported and produced by Annie McEwen. Cindu Nyanasambandham, Soren Wheeler, Alex Neeson, Tanya Chavla, Heather Radke, Matt Kilty, David Gable, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, and Pat Walters, with additional sound design and mixing from Jeremy Bloom.
3: Special thanks to Caitlin Murphy, Dana Stevens, David Novak, and Pablo
16: Pinero Stillman.
1: And thank you for listening uh, uh, on what was a probably felt like a very flimsy premise at the beginning, <laughs> it but maybe was. We'll be back. With more episodes next year. Next.
12: Radio Lab was created by Jad Boomrod and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts, Susie Luchtenberg is our executive producer, and Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sinduniana Sambandam, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Aryan Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Tanya Chavla and Sarah Sonbach, our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Adam
0: Chabel.
6: This is Ryan Percy calling from Stovermont. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons
4: Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science.